0: One of the things I've learned is being a dad of three daughters is that at my house, there is a lot of three things. There's a lot of hair. I mean, there's a lot of hair. I just don't even know where, like, where all this hair comes from. There's a lot of hair. There's a lot of noise, right? Just imagine three girls just trying to out yell the other one. But there's also a lot of questions. And if you guys remember when your little ones were toddlers, you guys know what I'm talking about with the questions, there was a study that came out recently, a couple years ago, and it said that on average, toddlers ask 73 questions a day. Now, that's a lot of questions, and take that times three, that's a lot of questions, right? But, and the reality is that we are just kids just trying to figure out life, we're just trying to understand, but I think out of my three girls, Hallie, my middle, who's almost nine, she is the question asker. Courtney's over there going, uh-huh, yeah, she is. I mean, didn't what you told Hallie to do, she had to ask you, why? Hey, Hallie, it's time to brush your teeth and get ready to bed. Why, Daddy? <laughs> Hallie, you need to eat all of your vegetables. Well, why? Or, or the best, Hallie, you can't, don't take the dog's leash and wrap it around his neck and ride him like a Bronco. Well, why, Daddy? Why not? The reality is we all have those questions, right? Like, Why? Like, what is the reason behind these things? And as we get older, I don't think the why questions stop, but I think they change. See, when we're little, we're asking why because we're trying to understand how the world works. But when, we're getting, when we get a little older, we get a little wiser, or maybe a little more jaded. We start to ask why because we want to know, can I trust what you're saying? We ask why because if we want to know, why should I listen to you? Why should I let you be an authority in my life? I think sometimes we do this with work. We do this uh, with with our elected leaders, right? We do this with our parents, kids in the room. But if we're honest, whether you're a Christian or not, I think sometimes we do this with God, don't we? Like, God, well, why would I listen to you? In the book of Exodus, last week, we saw Pharaoh ask this very question. In Exodus chapter five, we see that God raises up a man named Moses, and he sends Moses back to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh asks a question. It's a question that you ask, that I ask, that our culture asks, and that is this. Why? Why should I listen to what God says? Notice this question. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Moses says, let my people go. And notice what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh says, well, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh says, why? And you and I ask that same question too. God, why should I listen to you? Like God, God, why should I care what you have to say about how I spend my money and my time and how I to navigate my relationships? God, why should I care what the Bible has to say? God, what authority do you have over me? And the question ultimately, as we dig below the surface, is a question of credibility, isn't it? See, see Pharaoh's asking a credibility question. But here's what I want to see today, though. As we get in, we're going to see God begin to answer this question, and he's not going to answer with words. He's not going to do what we as parents often do, because I said so, right? We're not going to get it because I said so from God. What we're going to get from God instead is a demonstration of God's power as we look at what we know as the 10 plagues in the book of Exodus. But here's what I want you guys to do. I don't want to just look at these things as, like, these historical things that we're trying to figure out or, you know, trying to understand around this idea of, like, what is going on with the plagues. I want us to dig in deeper, and I want us to understand why God sent those plagues. Because God was teaching something to Pharaoh, to Egypt, but also, very importantly, he was teaching something to his people. He's teaching something to Israel. As he's preparing them for what's going to be the greatest rescue effort of all time, God has a lesson to teach them first. And I think as we lean into this, we're going to see God has a lesson for you and me as well. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to look with me here in Exodus chapter 7. Now, what's interesting about Exodus 7, where we, where we start here, is we're going to begin to see over the next five chapters kind of a clash of the titans. You're going to see God versus Moses or God versus Pharaoh. God speaking through Moses, God versus Pharaoh and this, like, clash of the titans. And and what's what's interesting about this is Pharaoh considered himself to be a god. And so you have God speaking through Moses talking to a man who thinks he's God. And so you're going to have what you're going to see is some conflict that begins. But here's what's interesting about this. I don't think Pharaoh had an issue with Moses having a god. I mean, think about this. was a pluralistic society. Egypt had 80 major gods and a number of minor gods. It had 114 gods. And so I don't think Pharaoh was upset that the Israelites had a god. The problem was that the Israelites' god was trying to tell Pharaoh what to do. And Pharaoh didn't like that at all. But I want to ask, doesn't that seem like our culture too? I mean, doesn't that seem a lot like our culture as well? And we live in a pluralistic society where it's kind of okay to believe whatever you want to believe. For the most part, it's not offensive that you believe in God. Actually, if you look at the recent studies from Pew Research, the Pew Research Organization, only 4% of people are, are atheists. There's a lot of agnostics in there, but only 4%. Only one out of every 25 people are true atheists. Now, they're loud. That's a, a loud minority. But that's a small number. Like, so many people believe in a a God or a higher power or something else out there. And so when you say, I believe in God, that doesn't really rub people the wrong way. But what does is when you say, I believe in Jesus, and I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of your sins. When you say that, that begins to rub people the wrong way because that means that he has authority over your life. And Pharaoh did not like the idea that this God of the Hebrews is now telling him what to do. It's not that different than us. Notice what Pharaoh says. Look, look, look or notice the exchange we see here in, in uh, Exodus chapter 7. We're going to see God begin to flex on Pharaoh and to show something real about himself to the people of Israel. And here's why this is important. Because your view of why you should listen to God will shape your life. Your view of why you should listen to God will determine so much of how you live your life, and it reveals a bigger question under the surface, is that who do you believe that God really is? So Pharaoh says, who's God? I don't know God, and why should I listen to him? And notice, over the next five chapters, we're going to try to cover as much as we can today. We can't hit it all, but we're going to see that God begins to answer that question, By demonstrating his power through the plague. So let's notice this. Let's look at the first one. God is going to demonstrate who he is and why Pharaoh should listen. Look look at Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. If you guys remember last week, that was one of the the miracles that God used. Moses, his stick, his staff turned into a, a snake, and then it turned back into a staff. So he says, go out there and take that staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Verse 19, and the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So notice, God does this. Moses and Aaron, they they go they in the sight of Pharaoh. They, they lift up the staff. They strike the water of the Nile, and the entire place turns to blood. Now look at verse 21. Verse 21, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. This is the first plague. God says, you want to know who I am? You want to know who I am, that why you should obey? Well, instead of me just giving you a discourse on why you should listen, instead, let me show you. And God begins to show his power by striking the center of life for the Egyptians. The Nile was the center of life. It was where commerce, it was where economy flowed from. It was the the flooding of the Nile was what led to their being able to grow their crops. I mean, the the Nile was the center hub of life. And the Egyptians, they worshipped the God of the Nile. And the God's name, interestingly, is Happy. Isn't that interesting? The name of the Egyptian God over uh, the, the Nile, if we translate to English, it's Happy. And this is a picture of happy. The, H- happy was the, the God of the now. And they believed if they could earn happy's favor, then happy would, would bless them with fullness. With, with the fullness of life. And, and that happy would give them everything they needed. So notice, what does God do? The very first thing, God doesn't say, well, here, here's why you should trust me. Let me give you a, some theological reasons. God instead says, let me show you. And he attacks the thing that they trust most for life. And that's the source of, of, of life to bring them fullness. You know, there's a commercial that came out a few years ago. Some of you might remember. It was of the new Cadillac ELR. And it came out during the Olympics. And, and the commercial was a few years ago. And the commercial was basically bagging on the rest of the world for not working as hard as Americans work. And so it, the, the commercial is all about just how good Americans are because we work so hard. And, and here's a quote from the commercial. It said that you, you work hard, you create your own luck, and you have to believe that anything is possible. Of course, like Cadillac had to back this off because they basically called the rest of the world lazy. But I think what Cadillac was doing it was getting at something that we all believe, that we all fall into, that fullness of life comes from the things of this world. Like we have this inner tension that screams, like just work hard, just make more money, just have more stuff, and you will finally feel full. Like this is the picture of fullness that we have in life. And you and I, we see this in our own lives. When God attacked the Nile, When God turned the Nile to blood, what he was showing to Pharaoh and to Egypt, they have built their lives on something false, something that can't provide the fullness of life that we desire. Now, now you might not be building your life on the God of the Nile. I hope you're not, by the way. But we, as people, aren't worshiping some false god like Egypt might have been. But you know what we are doing is we're worshiping the things around us, like our careers in our bank accounts, and our new stuff, in our relationship. And we think if we can just get married and get a little money in my pocket, then everything's going to be fine, and I'm going to feel full. And then it's on to the next thing, and it's on to the next thing. Isn't that just like believing in something like this? God's trying to tear down these pictures of idols in our minds, these things that we believe are going to make us feel full. God, the first thing he does in the plague is he strikes Egypt, he strikes the an Nile, and He says, Look, this thing that you've been putting your hope and heart in, it isn't real. You've believed and bought into a lie. Now you might hear that, and you might think, Yeah, but what about all my friends that don't go to church? What about all my friends who seem to be successful at work and happy and having fun vacations and they're not going to church? They're not waking up on Sunday mornings. They're sleeping in. They're giving in to whatever they want. It seems to me like they're living a great life. You ever felt that way before? Like, man, I get up on Sunday morning, go to church. I go to Bible study. I'm in life group. I'm serving. I'm I'm giving my heart to these things, but yet I see my friend over here, and he's doing whatever he wants, and man, he seems like he's living a good life. And I do think there are some common mercies that God gives us. I mean, God gives everybody beautiful sunsets and beautiful sunrises. God gives everybody mountains to climb and rivers to kayak. God gives everybody steaks to eat and wine to drink. But the difference is there's a fullness that you can never experience unless you've truly experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In in John 10.10, here's what Jesus said. He said that the thief comes to steal, but Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That means that, yeah, are there some common mercies that we can enjoy in life and we can all experience some beautiful things? Yes, but it means that without Jesus, you're going to miss out because Jesus is the only one that can get into those hard places, that can sneak into those crevices in your life, that can build you up, that can give you the fullness that your heart desires. You can't get that anywhere else. You can't get that from the God of the now. You can't get that from the God of your work. You can't get that from the God of your marriage. You can only get that from the God of the Bible, from Jesus Christ. It's the only place fullness can be found. So God, what he's doing is he's showing Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they put their hope in the wrong things. But what God is doing is he's showing the Israelites, before you follow me, I want you to understand that you have to give yourself fully over to me. Here's what he does. God is tearing down the idols in our lives to show us that true fullness can only be found in Jesus. That all through these plagues, you're going to see there's 10 of them, all through these plagues what God does is he's tearing down idols He's, he's attacking an Egyptian god, and he's tearing down idols. He, he's showing Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Israelites that these fake gods are not real. Instead, let me ask the question of who am I? I'm the one true God, the only one who's trustworthy. Now, I want you didn't notice something. Pharaoh sees this. He sees the, blood, the, the, the now turn to blood, so he calls his magicians in. Now, this is interesting. There, there's some magicians that he's got. Uh, occult practices potentially. Could they be, uh, could this be Satan, the, the devil working to try to thwart God's plans? We don't know exactly what these magicians were doing, but here's what we see in verse 22. Notice this. It says, but the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. So Pharaoh hardened his, Pharaoh's heart remained hard and he would not listen to them. God does this plague. He does this miracle, right? Now to blood, Pharaoh and his guys dig some water out on the side and they're able to turn it red. And so what does Pharaoh do? Ah, it's not real. Ah, it's a hoax. And his heart turns hard. Now, we don't know. Is this a trick? Was this the enemy? Was this the devil doing something, some occult practice? We don't know. But what we know is that Pharaoh sees it, and his heart remains hard. So notice, God doesn't stop. He doesn't go, ah, okay, ah, I don't know why that didn't work. Well, let's try something new. No, God's got a plan. Notice, he goes back in, second plague. Verse, chapter 8, notice this. Exodus chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go so that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over all the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now, anybody ever have a pet frog? Any Anybody in here ever have a pet frog? One? It's like my wife. She had like, okay, now we got a couple more. Okay, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, that's weird. So it's these pet frogs, right? Like some people have pet frogs. We used to, I'm just kidding. We used to chase bullfrogs as kids. Well, in Egypt, they believed in a frog goddess named Eket. Here's a picture of Eket. So Eket was their frog goddess. Like it Seriously, this is it. And, and Eket was the goddess of birth. And Eket was, in their culture, the one that brought fruitfulness. So when you worshiped Aket, Aket would bring fruitfulness in, in childbirth, fruitfulness in business, fruitfulness in legacy, and all these things. And so I want you to see what God does. The second, remember, now he, he turns the nile to blood, he's knocking out happy. Next thing he does, he, he's knocking out Ket because he's showing them that frogs, frogs aren't like these Deities, frogs are these like little slimy little things, right, that stink when they die. In in Egypt, you couldn't kill frogs. It was illegal to kill frogs. So what does God do? Kills all the frogs, right? I mean, notice that. It's it's really interesting. And so God brings up all these frogs. They invade all of the homes, and then they die, and they rot. So God is saying, whatever that idol is that you believe is going to lead to fruitfulness in your life, it's a lie. It's not gonna work. It's not real. Now, I don't think you and I, for the most part, are worshiping frogs. I hope we're not. But here's the reality anything you put your trust in that's going to lead you to believe that you have found the answer to fruitfulness is an idol. Because it doesn't matter what it is for you, whether it's work, it's relationships, it's your your investment accounts. How many of you know that you can have a really good season at work? You can just kill it at work, and the next year, everything dries up. You can have the best year of sales you've ever had. You can, you can solve more problems than you ever had before, and the next year, you have a slump. I mean, how many times have we seen uh, wide receivers have the best year of their career, and the next year, they get traded because they did not perform? Like, there, there is a, a, um, an untrustworthy aspect to life that you can't rest on past performance, You can't trust that things are just going to bring you fruitfulness in your life because they don't last. Those promises are not true. They just become idols that can't deliver. I was reading in the book of 1 Kings this week in the story of King Solomon. And if you know King Solomon, King Solomon had everything. King Solomon had gold and he had houses and he had boats and he had horses and he had ranches. King King Solomon was like Elon Musk without Twitter. Like, he didn't need Twitter. Like, he he had everything he could ever imagine. But I want you to notice what happens. At the end of his life, he he had everything he could ever get his hand on. At the end of his life, he says this. Notice this. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 14. Here's here's his, his summation of his entire life is this. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. He's like, look, you can build houses and they're gonna they're gonna fall down. You can build up retirements and you're gonna give it to your kid, and your kid's gonna spend it. You can build up a business and your kids maybe you're gonna run it, but then your grandkids are gonna squander it. Like there's nothing that's going to last this side of heaven. So why are we trying to put our hope and in, in uh, desire of the fruitfulness of all of the things around us when the only one that can truly bring fruitfulness is Jesus Christ? The only one that can truly lead us to experience the fruitfulness that our hearts desire is Jesus. And it comes from an obedience and following Jesus. Paul David Tripp says it like this. He says, when you trust in anything other than Jesus, it's like taking apples and stapling them to an apple tree. They'll look good for a while, but then they're going to rot and fall off. It's like where in our lives are we trusting fruitfulness? Are we seeking fruitfulness from our jobs or relationships or other things? Where God is saying, come on, recognize that I am the only path to the fruitfulness your heart desires, that your soul needs. God is saying, stop trusting in fake things. Give yourself over to truly trusting me. Now, this one hits Pharaoh pretty hard. I want you to notice Pharaoh calls Moses. He's like, Moses, take away these frogs, pray to God, plead with him, get rid of these frogs. And so Moses does. Moses asks God to get rid of the frogs. The frogs die. They pile them all up. It's really an ugly situation. But I want you to notice this. Verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15. Look at here. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, what happened? He what? Hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God predicted this. Don't miss this. One of the ways that God moves so often in our lives is through what we can call severe mercies. Like sometimes God wakes us up to our need. He wakes us up to the fact that we've been trusting the wrong things. And maybe it's, it's a health situation or we get fired from a job or it's a, a, you know, a really difficult challenge with suffering or hardship. And God wakes us up to our need. And before that, we were thought we were doing pretty good, but now everything's just been changed. And now we're finally aware like, God, I need you. Like, God, you're right. I've been trusting in the wrong thing. And so what do we do? Well, we dive in. We get really fired up about church. We start going to church. We start buying books. We start really uh, going to Bible studies, We start reading more and more about God. But then things get better. Things get better at work. Things get better with my health. And what happens? We get a respite. And so often in a respite, we forget what God has done. And we end up falling back into the old trap that we did before. This is what happened to Pharaoh, and God is trying to warn us. This is what can so often happen to us. But thankfully, God loves us too much to leave us that way. So look what he does. In verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 16, he sends the third plague. Now, this is an interesting plague. Notice this. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did. So Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on the beast. And notice what the magicians say. The magicians say, this is the finger of God. Now notice this. God didn't send the gnats because he was like, oh, the frogs didn't work, so ah. Let's just send gnats, I guess, right? Like God had a purpose. Every time God sends a plague, he has a purpose for this. God is systematically dismantling these Egyptians' gods. This is the third one he's done at this point. One by one, he's showing the Egyptians, Pharaoh, and the Israelites that they aren't real, that that they are just false idols. Now, the the gnats would have been an assault against the Hebrew god, Geb, if you guys remember back in, um, when we were in our Genesis series, we talked a little bit about Geb. Geb was the God of the earth. And so the God of the earth was the God that brought comfort into your life. And so God is saying, Geb, he's not real. Geb is just an idol, just somebody that's made up. Now think about this. Imagine you're an Israelite, and you're growing up in Egypt. And you're in slavery, and you look over, and you see these, these Hebrew, um, sorry these Egyptians. And these Egyptians are all living the good life, right? I mean, like, if you have ever watched any, like, Discovery Channel shows on Egypt, like, they're, like, sitting in, like, tiki huts just chilling, right? Drinking mimosas, like, relaxing all the day. While people, like, the Israelites are fanning them, and they're just eating grapes. Like, it looks like a great life, doesn't it? Like, it's just always at the beach, minus the ocean. But, it's, you know, it's always just relaxing. They always got nice tans, good haircuts. Like, they just look like it's a good life. Now, if you're an Israelite and you see that, What are you going to think? They've got it figured out, right? Like, I I wish I could be like them. And the Israelites, they probably probably still believed in Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. But I would probably guess that they worshipped these Egyptian gods too. They saw these Egyptian gods were the ones that were delivering and providing. And so they worshipped them too. See, notice what God is doing. God sends the gnats to show it doesn't matter what earthly comforts you have. You can't truly find the comfort of your soul unless you find it in the creator of your soul. I don't know about you guys. I grew up in Missouri. And there's about 10 days a year in Missouri that you could actually go out on your back porch, the really nice porch. You, pay, you, know, you, you, you put up all kinds of pretty decorations and light, Christmas lights and all that kind of stuff. And you got your barbecue grill out there. You can only go out there about 10 days a year without gnats eating you alive. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody from the Midwest or Texas or Kansas, you guys know what I mean, right? Like, oh, it's so nice outside. In like three minutes, you come in later, you got mosquito bites and gnats are all over you and you swallowed like 50 of them. Like you could have a beautiful house, a beautiful patio, the best Traeger grill. Doesn't matter if you can't go use it if you're covered in gnats. I think God is revealing to us you can have all of the earthly comforts you want, but it's not going to give you the comfort that you need in your soul. The gnats exposed and no amount of stuff brings comfort for our souls. Some of you might remember an interview back in 05 with Tom Brady, CBS interviewed Tom Brady. He had just won his third Super Bowl. And they sat down with Tom Brady, and they're like, Tom, tell us what, how, how great life is for you. And Tom said, you know, I was sitting in my hotel room, and I thought, after winning my third Super Bowl, is this all life really is about? Is this all there really is? I mean, he's married to a Victoria's Secret supermodel who makes hundreds of millions a year. He's got three Super Bowl rings at that point in time. Anything he could ever imagine that you could buy with money or success or power. And Tom Brady's even saying, I mean, is this it? Is this all that life has to bring? And I would be willing to bet that most of us would look at Tom and say, that's that's success. And instead, Tom's going, man, something's missing in my life. This reminder that God is trying to show us. God wants us to listen, to understand that he is the one who brings fullness and fruitfulness and comfort. We can't find it from all of these things in life that we try to find it from. It only can come from God. These are the first three plagues. Here's a graph. I don't have time to go through the, the, all ten of them. But here's a graph to show you what God is doing. So God sends the gnats to knock out the Egyptian god of Geb. God next will send flies to take out the Egyptian god of Kepri, who is the god of creation, who had the head of a fly. God on the fifth goes and he uh, sends devastation and disease on all of the livestock, and that was to uh, dismantle the, uh, the Egyptian god Hathor, who had a head of a cow. Number six, notice this, God sends boils on to the people of Egypt, all the people of Egypt, but notice this, at number four through ten, it doesn't affect the Hebrews. The Israelites are unaffected. This is all going to affect the Egyptians. The first one, um, number six, is the Isis, the goddess of medicine. Number seven, hail, is the goddess of the sky, Nut. Number eight, Locust, is the god of disorder, Seth. Number nine, darkness. It's, uh, we'll get to that one in a minute. And then number 10, we'll see next week, we'll talk about the Passover. So we've seen that God is systematically dismantling these Egyptians. God, Don't miss this. What God is doing is he's overthrowing the temptation for the Israelites to fall into the trap of believing the same lies the Egyptians believed. Like God is he's, hes overthrowing the temptation to, to find our, our, uh, our hearts, our fullness, our fruitfulness, our comfort in things outside of God. Because he is trying to help them see something that John Calvin said 500 years ago, that the heart of man is like a factory for idols. God knew this for the Israelite people. And he wanted to prepare them. If they're going to follow him, they've got to see that God is the one that truly brings life. So God does this for Pharaoh. He does this for Israel. He's answering the question, who am I? Why should I listen? And here's the question I want to ask you. Could God be doing the same thing in your life? And if he's doing it, do you recognize what he's doing? God may not be sending a plague. Hopefully, he's not sending a plague. But God may be allowing some things to happen to help you ask that question. What idols, what false things, what lies have I allowed to get in the way where I start to believe that that is where I find fullness and fruitfulness and comfort rather than God himself? Now, I want you to notice something. Here, as we get close to closing, there's a a pattern that's happening here. There's a pattern that's happening with, with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I want you to notice this. i got another graph. I'm going to throw that same graph back up. Notice this on this graph. Notice that Pharaoh's heart is hardened at every turn. Notice the first one. The first five, we see that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, the first two. this third and, and, and fifth one, his heart was hard. We, we think by translation what it's saying is that Pharaoh, again, his heart was hard because of what happened. But notice this change. Let's flip to the next graph. Notice this with the sixth, with the sixth plague. You see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why? See that's that's tough to get our mind wrapped around. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? You see, he hardens Pharaoh's heart with the boils. He hardens Pharaoh's heart with the locusts. He hardens Pharaoh's heart with the darkness, and he hardens Pharaoh's heart with the Passover. With the 10th plague. Why does God do this? I want you to notice this. God had called Pharaoh to humble himself and to listen five times. And Pharaoh said no five times. And each time Pharaoh said no, he hardened his own heart. So we see what God begins to do is he begins to actually harden Pharaoh's Hard. and we can see how this is played out from the transition from the eighth to the ninth plague notice this look at exodus 10 verse 20 notice this so the eighth to the ninth plague we see that the lord hardened pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of israel go why would god do this because god wants to teach us something notice god wants us to see that even the most heinous and absurd forms of human evil are not a true threat to god's purposes that god gave pharaoh 5 opportunities to change his heart, and Pharaoh did not change his heart. And so at that point, God decides, I'm going to move through this situation by hardening Pharaoh's heart myself. And we see that God wants to, can steer even evil. God doesn't engineer the evil. He can steer the evil towards his plan to bless the world through his family. Notice this. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 21. Notice the ninth plague, and this is the last plague we're going to talk about today. The ninth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Notice that. Three days. Remember all the symbolism through Scripture with the three? Three days. And so for three days, verse 23, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And notice once you to see what God what he's doing here. He hardens Pharaoh's heart so he can continue to dismantle these Egyptian gods, but he wants to show the Israelites something before he rescues them. The Egyptians believed in the sun god Ra. The sun god was the most powerful god in Egypt. Often they would call, call him Amon-Ra, and they believed that he was the creator god. He was outside of Pharaoh the most worshiped god. He was the most powerful god. And by God turning the world dark for three days, God is saying to the Egyptians, son God is not in control. Ra is not in control. Instead, it's me. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart to prove to them that God was ultimately the one in control. So I think this is one of the things that God wants us to show us through his word, is that God is the one who's in control. It's not us. And that's good news. It's not the things around us. It's not our governments. It's not the people in our lives. It's God. And he's trying to dismantle the idols from us so they don't. So we can turn our attentions to God and to see that fullness and fruitfulness and comfort, they come from God. And they come from God alone. This is a tough section of Scripture. I mean, talking through the plagues, this is difficult. But I think there's a lot of truths that God wants us to take away from this. And here's what God does. Through these 10 plagues, and we'll cover number 10 next week, we're going to see that God is answering that question, that same question that we ask, the same question our culture asks, and the question that Pharaoh asked, why should I listen? And God is answering that question by showing us that he is the one and true God, that he is Yahweh. He is the I am that I I am And then we should listen because it's in him that he has the words of life. It's in him that we can truly find life. So God is showing the Israelites, trust me, I want you to see my power because when I lead you out of here, you're going to be tempted to want to run back. We're going to see that that's what they're going to do. He's saying, trust me because I am the one in control. And I think God gives us these chapters in the book of Exodus and this crazy stories of these plagues to tell us that exact same thing too. Trust me. I am in control. Stop believing in the false stuff that culture and the world and our own fickle hearts want to fall for. But believe that it only you can only find life in me. And when you put your faith in me, it's at that point that you can truly experience the deepness and the fullness and the richness that Jesus alone can offer. Remember we talked earlier about John 10 when Jesus says that he came to give us life, the life of abundance, the full life. When Jesus came on this earth in Mark 1, verse 15, I want you to notice what Jesus says. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus came and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus says that, that the, the way we follow him, the way we come into faith is to Repent of where we've trusted in the wrong things. Repent of where we've fallen into the traps and believe. To believe that Jesus is all we need. To believe that Jesus is enough to ask God to give us the faith to believe more and more. And I wonder, if if you wanted to know, if you look at your life and you wanted to know, what is holding you back from taking that step forward? What is holding you back from from fully believing, from fully trusting, from fully following? Could it be that we have fallen for the lie? We've fallen for the lie that something else is going to bring us into fullness. We've fallen for the lie that something's going to lead to our own happiness, fruitfulness. Something else is going to bring us comfort. And could it be that what's holding us back is we just need to repent of that? If you know Jesus, if you've said yes to Jesus, Jesus says, confess your sins to me and I will forgive you, that I will wash you clean. Could it be that we just haven't done that very thing? Could it be that we just need to ask God to give us the faith to believe, to stop trusting in my bank account or my job or my relationship and start trusting in in Him? See, following Jesus is a lifetime of repenting and believing. It's something that you'll never graduate from. It's something that we'll have to do every single day for the rest of our life. But here is God's promise. As we do, that we begin to experience a deepness and a richness and a fullness and a realness that we've never experienced before. And the only way to truly experience is by repenting and believing in Jesus. So here's what I want to do for the next few moments. I want to just do this together. As we have the the band back here on stage, I just want to invite you where you are. Here in a moment, we're going to have a moment of corporate confession. Well, we're just going to read a prayer on the screens together. And we're asked as we do, God, help us to repent and believe. Father, help us to repent of all of the fake stuff out there that we put our faith in, and help us to truly believe that you are the one that you say you are, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I believe as we do this, as we do this together, God will knit our hearts and minds together, our spirits and our bodies together, as we seek to become the people he created us to be. So let's take a moment and let's recite this prayer of confession together and ask God to wash over us and to make us new. So I'll lead us, and if you guys would recite with me. Almighty God, we are sinners. Your word in our hearts confirm that to us. We have done things that you have forbidden and left undone things you have commanded. We have not loved you with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. As judge of the whole earth, you would be just to condemn us. Yet in your love, you sent Christ to bear the guilt of our sin and suffer our punishment. To him, we now flee. Forgive us for his sake. And by your spirit, help us to live in light of his sacrifice. Lives worthy of your name. Judge us not according to our work, but according to your mercy in Jesus Christ. For in him we hope, and in him we come before you this day. Amen.